Jove. Calamity is not a punishment. Today I am going to read you a fragment of an old text that is considered, and I quote, one of the most noble works of world literature, the Book of Job. This is the story of a very wealthy man who lived 3,000 years ago in the Bronze Age, i.e. the days of King David and King Solomon, the Iliad and the Odyssey, 3,000 years ago. In my appreciation, that alone makes it irresistible, but on top of that, the book of Job is so splendidly well written that many experts place it on the same exalted plane as the Greek tragedies of Aeschylus and Sophocles. Do you see what I'm talking about? Dante's Divine Comedy, Milton's Paradise Lost, and Goethe's Faust. In fact, the prologue in heaven, which opens Goethe's Faust, is modeled entirely blow by blow on the famous interview between Satan and God, which opens the book of Job. Alfred Lord Tennyson, poet laureate to no less than Queen Victoria, claimed that the book of Job is the greatest poem of ancient or modern times. Clearly a masterpiece, then. Jove, the admirable hero of this story, has a problem. He's so good and blameless that he's attracted the attention of both God and Satan. It happens to me all the time, caramba! Ho, ho, ho. Satan, whose name means the accuser, the eternal, awful gossip, always speaking evil against you and me, resents Job's piety and goodness. Let's get it clear. Satan does not mind that Job is powerful and influential. He couldn't care less that he has properties and children and servants and heads of cattle by the thousands. No. What bothers him is that Job is a good and righteous man, and he wants to destroy and smear him by suggesting that he's only pious, he's only good, because that is his dishonest way to win God's favor as if God would never notice that. <laughs> oh, but God knows that Job is much bigger than this, that the integrity of this man is solid and will not disappear at the first wave of misfortune. And because God has so much faith in Job, yes, I'll say that again, it's not that Job has so much faith in God. No, no, no. God has so much faith in Job that he allows Satan to do his thing and put him to the test. This undesirable and undesired divine transaction will propel Job into the eye of a hurricane of sudden consecutive catastrophes, each more devastating than the previous one. This is the intimate story of a good man who suffers so much that in his pain, he will be driven to the extreme of cursing the day he was born. That bad. Job has no idea that he's at the center of a contest between God and Satan. He wonders but ignores what God's purpose is in everything that happens to him. 
Neither does he imagine that in maintaining his personal integrity in the midst of overwhelming suffering, he's not only disproving, but even defeating Satan himself, because it is Satan and not Job who ends up humiliated. Oh. Today I read you the first three chapters and also chapters 29 and 42 of this amazing book. That is, the beginning, middle, and end of the story. On another occasion, very soon and with more time, I will also read for you the beautiful hymn to wisdom in chapter 28, and the story of the fat, rich, invincible monster, Leviathan, which also appears in the book of Job. But today we focus on his personal battle. What Satan wants to do is to destroy Job by making him curse God. But he never succeeds, no matter how hard he tries. Between the devil and God stands this extraordinary human being called Job. In the end, it will be neither the devil nor God who triumph because it was not really their fight. What triumphs is the goodness, the personal integrity of this lonely and ever so brave man called Job. Why do good people suffer? This was a pressing issue 3,000 years ago, just as it is today, because we are all in the eye of this hurricane called life. Job was a man who lived in the region of Uz. He was honest inside and out, a man of his word, who was totally devoted to God and hated evil with a passion. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was also very wealthy. 7,000 head of sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a huge staff of servants. The most influential man in all the East. His sons used to take turns hosting parties in their homes, always inviting their three sisters to join them in their merrymaking. When the parties were over, Job would get up early in the morning and sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking maybe one of them sinned by defying God inwardly. Job made a habit of this sacrificial atonement just in case they'd sinned. One day when the angels came to report to God, Satan, who was the designated accuser, came along with them. God singled out Satan and said, What have you been up to? Satan answered God, Going here and there, checking things out on earth. God said to Satan, Have you noticed my friend Job? There's no one quite like him, honest and true to his word, totally devoted to God and hating evil. Satan retorted, So do you think Job does all that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why, no one ever had it so good. You pamper him like a pet. Make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. Bless everything he does. He can't lose. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything that is his? He'd curse you right to your face. That's what. 
God replied, We'll see. Go ahead. Do what you want with all that is his. Just don't hurt him. Then Satan left the presence of God. Sometime later, while Job's children were having one of their parties at the home of the oldest son, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing in the field next to us when Sabians attacked. They stole the animals and killed the field hands. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, Bolts of lightning struck the sheep and the shepherds and fried them, burned them to a crisp. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, Chaldeans coming from three directions raided the camels and massacred the camel drivers. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, Your children were having a party at the home of the oldest brother when a tornado swept in off the desert and struck the house. It collapsed on the young people, and they died. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. Job got to his feet, ripped his robe, shaved his head, then fell to the ground and worshipped. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'll return to the womb of the earth. God gives, God takes, God's name be ever blessed. Not once through all this did Job sin. Not once did he blame God. One day when the angels came to report to God, Satan also showed up. God singled out Satan, saying, And what have you been up to? Satan answered God, Oh, going here and there, checking things out. Then God said to Satan, Have you noticed my friend Job? There's no one quite like him, is there? Honest and true to his word, totally devoted to God and hating evil. He still has a firm grip on his integrity. You tried to trick me into destroying him, but it didn't work. Satan answered, A human would do anything to save his life. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away his health? He'd curse you to your face, that's what. God said, All right, go ahead. You can do what you like with him, but mind you, don't kill him. Satan left God and struck Job with terrible sores. Job was ulcers and scabs from head to foot. They itched and oozed so badly that he took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself, then went and sat on a trash heap among the ashes. His wife said, Still holding on to your precious integrity, are you? Curse God and be done with it. He told her, You're talking like an empty-headed fool. We take the good days from God. Why not also the bad days? Not once through all these did Job sin. He said nothing against God. 
Three of Joe's friends heard of all the trouble that had fallen on him. Each traveled from his own country. Eliphaz from Teman, Bildad from Shua, Sofar from Namath, and went together to Job to keep him company and comfort him. When they first caught sight of him, they couldn't believe what they saw. They hardly recognized him. They cried out in lament, ripped their robes, and dumped dirt on their heads as a sign of their grief. Then they sat with him on the ground. Seven days and nights they sat there without saying a word. They could see how rotten he felt, how deeply he was suffering. Then Joe broke the silence. He spoke up and cursed his fate. Obliterate the day I was born. Blank out the night I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed by the night. And the night of my conception, the devil take it, reap the date of the calendar, delete it from the almanac. Oh, turn that night into pure nothingness, no sounds of pleasure from that night ever. May those who are good at cursing curse that day. Unleash the sea beast Leviathan on it. May its morning stars turn to black cinders, waiting for a daylight that never comes, never once seeing the first light of dawn. And why? Because it released me from my mother's womb into a life with so much trouble. Why didn't I die at birth, my first breath out of the womb, my last? Why were there arms to rock me and breasts for me to drink from? I could be resting in peace right now, asleep forever, feeling no pain in the company of kings and statesmen in the royal ruins, or with princes resplendent in their gold and silver tombs. Why wasn't I stillborn and buried with all the babies who never saw light, where the wicked no longer trouble anyone and bone-weary people get a long-deserved rest? Prisoners sleep undisturbed, never again to wake up to the bark of the guards. The small and the great are equals in that place, and slaves are free from their masters. Why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Why bother keeping bitter people alive? Those who want in the worst way to die and can't. Who can't imagine anything better than death. Who count the day of their death and burial the happiest day of their life. What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense? When God blocks all the roads to meaning? Instead of bread, I get groans for my supper. Then leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I dreaded most has happened.
My repose is shattered. My peace destroyed. No rest for me, ever. Death has invaded life. Job now resumed his response. Oh, how I long for the good old days, when God took such very good care of me. He always had a lamp before me, and I walked through the dark by its light. Oh, how I miss those golden years when God's friendship graced my home, when the Mighty One was still by my side and my children were all around me, when everything was going my way and nothing seemed too difficult. When I walked downtown and sat with my friends in the public square, young and old greeted me with respect. I was honored by everyone in town. When I spoke, everyone listened. They hung on my every word. People who knew me spoke well of me. My reputation went ahead of me. I was known for helping people in trouble and standing up for those who were down on their luck. The dying blessed me, and the bereaved were cheered by my visits. All my dealings with people were good. I was known for being fair to everyone I met. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, father to the needy and champion of abused aliens. I grabbed street thieves by the scruff of the neck and made them give back what they'd stolen. I thought I died peacefully in my own bed grateful for a long and full life, a life deep-rooted and well-watered, a life limber and dew-fresh, my soul suffused with glory and my body robust until the day I die. Men and women listened when I spoke, hung expectantly on my every word. After I spoke, they'd be quiet, taking it all in. They welcomed my counsel like spring rain, drinking it all in. When I smiled at them, they could hardly believe it. Their faces lit up. Their troubles took wing. I was their leader, establishing the mood and setting the pace by which they lived. What I led, they followed. Jove answered God. I am convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit it, I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all first hand from my own eyes and ears. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. And God accepted Job's prayer. After Job had interceded for his friends, 
God restored his fortune and then doubled it. All his brothers and sisters and friends came to his house and celebrated. They told him how sorry they were and consoled him for all the trouble God had brought him. Each of them brought generous housewarming gifts. God blessed Job's later life even more than his earlier life. He ended up with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first daughter Dove, the second Cinnamon, and the third Dark Eyes. There was not a woman in that country as beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father treated them as equals with their brothers, providing the same inheritance. Job lived on another 140 years, living to see his children and grandchildren, four generations of them. Then he died. An old man, a full life. Why do good people suffer? The book of Job teaches us this is a fallen world that does not reward or punish according to justice. This is a world that is not ruled by fairness and hence the innocent will suffer. The worst things also happen to the best people. No matter how good a person is, they may still not do well for themselves in this world. In fact, it may well be the opposite, that it is by doing good that we will be beset by evil. The book of Job teaches us that calamity is not proof that we have done something wrong. Misfortune is not a punishment from heaven. When bad things happen to us, this does not mean that we are paying the penalty for our bad deeds. No. Misfortune can and will reach us all, good or bad, rich or poor, young or old. And the only way to triumph over this misfortune will be by clinging with unflinching commitment to our goodness, to our integrity. We must have faith in goodness and move forward. Why do the good suffer and the bad guys seem to get away with it? The people around Job believed that all his blessings were the reward for his kindness. And that is why, when he lost everything, his own wife and his best friends accused him of having done something bad to deserve such punishment, because calamity was supposed to be a punishment. But Job knew that he was one of the good guys, that he had done nothing wrong, and that is why he felt betrayed by God, who is supposed to uphold the order of the world in which the good are rewarded and the bad punished. Oh, how it hurts to feel betrayed by God, like Job did. And now, let me briefly digress here. You wouldn't imagine how many of us become atheists at one time or another precisely because we too feel betrayed by God like this. Because something went 
terribly wrong because a loved one died, because something broke our hearts and we felt betrayed by God. And now, in our anger, we take revenge on God by trying to deny His existence and persuading others to abandon their faith in Him. I dare say that 95% of atheists I've ever met, and especially the loudest, the angriest, like Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, Erdman, Sherman, Fry, and Gervais, became atheists like this because their girlfriend, their wife, their daughter died, as was the case with Charles Darwin himself. They are atheists because they are holding on for dear life to an emotional wound. Feeling betrayed by God is a powerful motivation to become an atheist. I'll say it again. Feeling betrayed by God is a powerful motivation to become an atheist. But it's not a reason, because it's not rational. It's an emotional impulse, like saying, My wife betrayed me. Therefore, now I will dedicate my life to demonstrating that my wife does not exist. She never existed, and I will persuade others not to believe in her either. Oh, well, that, as a rational argument doesn't quite hold it, does it? If my wife betrayed me, of course I have reasons to resent her, to begrudge her, to ask myself what the hell was I thinking the day I married her. But to move on from this, to say that, therefore, she has never existed. Really? Imagine that I had to report that crime to the police. Officers, my wife has betrayed me and left me for another man, and they took my money and my teddy bear and the keys to my car. The police would ask me, Well, sir, uh, give us your wife's details so we can find her. To which I would answer, No, gentlemen, my wife does not exist. My wife betrayed me, therefore she does not exist. Hmm. Can you imagine how the cops would look at me? Let me see if I understand you, sir. Your wife betrayed you to run away with another man, and they took your teddy bear and money and the keys to your car. But she does not exist. (laughs) Our arguments as atheists are not rational. Our attitude, the passion and fury with which we attack God in moments of extreme pain, betray this. They are emotional reactions, like when the good man Job curses with such eloquence and lyricism the day he was born. Nothing to do with reason, really. All our passion spouts from an open wound, from a supposed grievance that God inflicted on us. Hence the passion, the anger, and the emotional energy we invest in attacking God. I do not mean to minimize or disrespect at all the hurt we feel, the bleeding wound we suffer, and the legitimate pain that the wound is causing us. I was there myself for years. 
But our positions, our objections, our grievances against God are not rational ideas. They are emotional reactions. That does not nullify them, but it certainly debunks them as supposedly rational arguments. Oh, I'm a very rational person, so I cannot believe in God, but I really wish I could like you. Come on. <laughs> I've heard that one a million times. How much progress we could make if we realized this. There may be a thousand reasons to fight it out with God. Yes, as Jacob did, as Job did, as Nietzsche did. But they are not rational reasons. They are emotional motives. How much progress we make when we realize that our big quarrel with God is emotional, not rational. The book of Job teaches us that it's okay to have loud, even screaming arguments with God. That it's okay to feel overwhelmed by calamity and question everything and even curse the day we were born. But it also teaches us that there is no rational, recent, reasonable answer to the ugly, spiky, and deplorable fact that in this world we will see the best people suffer while the worst people seem to get away with it. This is beyond doubt. We see it everywhere we turn to look. And there is not and will never be a rational answer for it because it is not a rational question, i.e. to do with how we think but a moral question, i.e. to do with how we feel and act and live. Our very noble and justified rage at injustice is born of the clash between what we see and suffer in life and what we expect or believe to be fair, correct, acceptable, what we all deserve to get or not for our good or bad behavior, not our good or bad reasoning. Our atheism did not arise from asking objective and detached questions about abstract subjects like the cosmos, or the fine-tuning required to make life possible, the Big Bang, or entropy. Come on! Atheism is much more interesting than that. It arises from feeling disappointed with God, the church, religion, society, or even the family in which we grew up. The past majority of the time from simply wanting to blend in and be seen as really cool. Because it's supposed to be really cool to mock God and religion. Let's not waste time believing that atheism is more rational or better informed and more intelligent than faith in God because atheism never was, nor will it ever be, more intelligent, rational, or well-informed than faith in God. And that's the end of this digression. Sorry that it was longer and more urgent than I expected it to be. Today, I only read for you five of the 42 beautiful chapters that make up the book of Job. In the end, Job triumphs and receives a reward that is double than all he lost. Satan loses 
the challenge. The book of Job shows us in a deeper way than any other book written before or after how a righteous man, a good man, can overcome evil, pain, and utter despair. The man Job, not God, not Satan, is the hero on whom the outcome of the story depends. And his personal integrity is a force so formidable and untamable that it can overcome evil itself. We learn that a good man who retains his integrity is so powerful that he can, with faith and determination, defeat a cosmic enemy, survive the stings and blows of Satan himself. What an amazing and illuminating lesson. In behaving like such a hero, Job left us an urgent lesson for daily life. That calamity is not a punishment. And in the midst of suffering, it is better to focus on the future, on the purpose that this suffering will fulfill, rather than focus on the past and tie ourselves in knots trying to find the cause, the reason for this suffering. Bad things will happen to all of us. It is better to meditate on the lesson we might learn, the victory we might win, than to waste time and energy looking back to see who we can blame. And that is one of many radiant whispers contained in the fascinating book of Job. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, press that little heart, subscribe, and share it.